The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. There are a lot of funny movies that come out where one character reads the mind of another character and hears their inner thoughts, and they're always funny uh, kinds of concepts. But what if you could really see what people are thinking before they say a word out loud? What if there was a way for you to know what somebody was thinking and then take some action on it that benefited you and your company? Well, to share with us secrets, tips, and tricks on body language and master skills of negotiation, a master negotiator, Greg Williams. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joel. Nice to have you here, man. How are you? Hey, I'm alive, so I'm A-OK. That's what I always say. Hey, life is a state of mind. <laughs> you know, it always makes me nervous when somebody says they're a body language expert because I always get the sense, oh, my God, now he knows something that, that about me that, that I wish he didn't know. Is that, is that so? I mean, is that, you know, how, how much, how, how deep can you read into what's going on? Well, depending upon how well you observe the body language of someone, you can gain a lot of insight into their thought process. And one of the reasons that's true is because the action comes first. There may be nanoseconds before an action is displayed. Then the words will follow. That's usually a sign of to what degree a person is being truthful also. So if you see someone saying, well, I think I'm positive of that. Okay. Even in that nonverbal gesture that you just heard in the form of that pause, you know, they are not as positive as they might have you think they are. That's number one. And well, you know, I'll tell you, first of all, whenever I hear the word, I think mm -hmm. I always know that that doesn't mean uh, anything. As soon as somebody says, I think it, to me, it means I'm making this up as I go along. Well, and Joel, as I was going to say, and number two is their mindset has been displayed to you in that particular situation. Now, to your point, a negotiator, a good negotiator, may use the premise that someone has of, well, as soon as somebody says, I think, I always think, or I know they're not as uh, thoughtful as they are projecting themselves to be or whatever, a good negotiator could turn that around and have you think that about him or her in order to lead you down a particular path, a path that's to his advantage. So one has to be not, not only careful about how one negotiates with someone, but at the same time, aware, be very much aware of the body language signals that they emit and that they 
perceive because there's a lot of going a lot of things going on in a negotiation and it's just not the verbiage that's being exchanged that can lend insight to what's really happening in someone's mind. Well, I'll tell you this is a this is a pretty fascinating topic. You know, when you put master negotiator on your on your card like you do and on on some of your uh, paperwork does that does that immediately uh, put people on guard, or do you think that, that gives you an advantage, disadvantage? I mean, what what do you think? Well, you heard me say at the onset that um, a state of mind is what it is that you have about how you perceive life. Some people have come up to me after I've spoken, and they'll say things like, "I bet I can out negotiate you." My response has been, "Yeah, you probably can." And they look baffled at that because they think, well, but you're supposed to be the master negotiator. negotiator. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to display your goods all the time. And to have it on your card only sets you apart from other individuals that are negotiators. And truth be known, part of that branding came from when I was a TV news contributor. Well, it's pretty cool. So give us us an example of a time or two that you've... uh you know, been involved in a significant negotiation or you've done something uh, pretty significant. Let's you know, have you been involved in any deals or, or, or hostage <laughs> negotiations or anything complicated? Have you done anything like that? Well, well, actually, now that you speak about a hostage negotiation, I was involved in one uh, several years ago in the state of New Jersey. And it occurred where an individual had actually kidnapped his son from the child's mother because the mother and the father had some type of uh, situation, let's call it. And that occurred when both the mother and the the, uh, father were very upset with one another. In that case also, the father had shot the mother's father in the leg and escaped with the kid. What I observed was the fact that this individual that had taken his kid wasn't really trying to harm anyone after he had committed the initial act. Now, I saw that in the body language. I saw it also in the manner in which he was speaking. And what could have turned out to be a very negative situation in the form of the uh, him getting killed or even him killing the kid was, let's call it, um, lessened as the result of me being able to negotiate with that particular individual. And, and all I did, Joel, truth be known, was to display empathy with the situation that he had found himself in in that particular case. So in a negotiation, you always want that individual that you're uh, negotiating with to see you as being human. One way to do that is to let him or her know that you understand the plight that he or she is actually going through at that particular point in time. That was just one particular situation. In corporate environments, I have literally been someone that appeared to be a note taker in a negotiation at the opposite end of the table, just taking notes. But what I was really doing for our side was observing the body language gestures of the opposing negotiators to determine and uncover Who was really the power player on their side? Because you don't necessarily want someone to know that you're the person in charge when you're negotiating, especially in a team environment, because you want to see what the other team will do if they think the person that they're negotiating with has the power to do X, Y, Z based on that person's positional power. 
So I, I've had a lot of different negotiation situations throughout my life and my, my career, I should say. Uh, and it's, it's been very enlightening for me. Are, are these are these skills that you have? Are, are these self taught skills? Did you were you trained in these skills? I, I mean, is it just um, school of hard knocks kind of skills? Where where does it come from? You hit upon all of them, Joel. You literally hit upon all of them. Uh, I've attended Harvard uh, in order to be trained more proficiently in negotiation skills. The school of hard knocks. When I was a little kid, my mother. Uh, used to literally negotiate for everything. And I used to say to her, mom, if you keep asking people for a better price or to lower their price or things of that nature, they're going to think we're poor. And she said, well, first of all, we are. And number two, the more money that you save, the more you can do with the money that you have. And thus, I just, from the time I was a little boy, I would watch her literally negotiate, and I just paid attention to the outcome of situations based on the strategies that she would employ. Then, before I became a professional speaker and trainer, I actually worked, the last organization I worked for, um, I had the highest margins in the company, and it was an information technology consulting firm. The president of the organization said, Greg, what are you doing that no one else is doing? And I said, well, I'm not. Sure, except I negotiate uh, deals a little more extensively than maybe some of the other people do. And he said, well, can you teach them how to do it? And I said, of course I can. So, so Joel, it's a combination of school of hard knocks because I've made some mistakes, but I don't term them as such. I term them as learning experiences. When it comes to <laughs> and, and I always tell people also, my, as my moniker states, you're always negotiating, or I should say, as my tagline states, you're always negotiating. Look at every situation that you're involved in as a negotiation. I'm amazed even at uh, the fact that some professionals don't realize when they are in a negotiation. And that is, okay, well, we're not sitting across the table in a negotiation environment, so we must not be negotiating. Uh Uh-uh, that's not true. Anytime you are emitting signals as to what you might do in a particular situation, I, as a negotiator, can gather that information up, continue to add to the dossier that I'm building on you per how you might act in a situation, and then when we get into that environment where you're sitting across the table, I know how to push your buttons, and thus I know how to trigger you to believe, think, act in a particular way. Pretty awesome. Pretty uh, pretty interesting. So tell us, um, give us a trick or two. Is there, you know, I mean, I mean, well... You know, it's funny. I use the word trick. I mean, you know, I always talk about the inside track and, you know, being great at something, you have the inside track and you can share that with us. I, I kind of have the sense that people perceive negotiators to be like, uh, they're, they're always winning. They're, they're like, uh, they're bullies. They're, they're fighting. They're boxers. They're, they're knocking down, dragging out They're whatever it takes to win. Uh, my sense is for watching you, you're a little more smooth than probably the stereotype. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. And number two, there are situations where you will exercise as a negotiator a win-win scenario. That's to say, you want the other person to feel at least that he has come out winning, winning whatever he defines it as, such that he doesn't go back on the deal or uh, lay uh, mines for you later somewhere down in your career. And my latest book, Joel, Negotiating with a Bully, I talk about how when you negotiate with someone that takes a win-lose perspective and or 
someone that is extremely, let's call it gullible, uh, likes to deride other individuals, wants to push someone around, you have to adopt a different strategy in that case. But basically, I like to exercise and participate in win-win environments because I'm a people person, number one. Number two, I want the other negotiator to feel as though, hey, I got something out of this engagement. Other negotiators may take the perspective of, uh, I have to win in order, you have to lose in order for me to win. And if that be the case, the negotiation gets a whole heck of a lot tougher. Our president is um, considered uh, to be some kind of a master negotiator, or, you know, or at least he's a deal maker. You know, and you can't be in the deal business without at least having pretty good negotiation skills. Your opinion of the, of the man aside, you know, what do you think about his negotiating skills? I'm going to be as uh, non-political as I possibly can with this response. <laughs> <laughs> we can learn something from everyone. There, there, that's, that's a good attitude, by the way. We can learn something from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and in the case of the president, um, let's say there are times when I've literally scratched my head about some of the negotiations that he's engaged in per what his overall strategy was. And I state that to say, in a negotiation, you have to have planned for how you're going to enter the negotiation, how adaptive you might be to different challenges that occur in the negotiation, so you'll know which roadmap to take in case you're thrown off guard or something, and then what the end game is for the outcome that you seek of the negotiation. With our president, uh, there are times when I, I don't see exactly what his strategy is. Now, having said that, part of his strategy could be just to confuse the heck out of people such that they don't know what he's doing either. He does, so, that, he does that all the time. You know, that, that's a big part of his strategy. Is, uh, and the, the thing for him in private enterprise, and this is something, I mean, listen, like you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the deal business. I, I, I do a lot of this. But I watch him in the deal in the private sector business. He doesn't run across the same people more than a couple times. I mean, every so often. But in the spotlight, uh, you know, where we're seeing everything he does. I mean, he's very. He's actually very predictable. It's very predictable. Uh, and maybe what he does, maybe the predictability is that he's unpredictable. And, and that by itself, that's a pattern that that's important to know on the other side of the table. Well, and yes, I definitely agree with you there. And here's another thing about exactly some of the things that he engages in. First of all, from a power position, and we all have positional power in a negotiation as we flow through a negotiation. The president has the inside track, if you'll allow me to say that for a moment, from a power position simply because he's the president of the United States. Now, some of his tendencies to push others around emanates from him no matter what environment he's in except when he is in an environment with one particular world leader which uh, i'm not going to even name at this point in time because like i said i don't want to make this into a political environment but you then have to wonder what it is that's causing that situation to alter his perspective and the reason i mentioned that is because yes He's consistent in one particular manner. So that's one thing that you observe when you're negotiating with someone. They always act in a particular way when they're dealing with people they perceive as equal or less than. 
and thus if they were a bully in those type of situations and then all of a sudden they alter that, you then wonder, hmm, what's causing him to do so? Do they have something else on this individual that I don't know about? Is there some type of leverage I can use as the result of then getting that other entity involved in the negotiation such that I can push whomever it is that we're targeting, that we're negotiating with, off the inside track, and I can use that as a possibility to make him do more of what it is that I want him to do. But you just have to wonder from time to time what it is that's in the mindset of the president when he's negotiating. And one of his staunchest supporters, and again, I won't even name anyone, literally said a few days ago that the president is really not that good of a negotiator, number one, and his business acumen has been well overstated as to what it really is. Now, that came from one of his major uh, supporters, uh, not necessarily on social media, but uh, let's say from the radio. You know, I'll tell you something. Um, I kind of question uh, some of those critics, uh, you know, and, and my opinion aside, uh, you know, one of the things that's wrong with our political situation is it's kind of become black and white. It's all or nothing. Uh, there are things that he does very well. There's a lot of things that I don't like about him. There's a few things I do. And, you know, so you got to pick and cheat. Not everything is bad. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing. But I will say from our negotiating point of view, I think that some of his skills are so good that other people don't even understand how good they are. And that's, that's part of the issue. I'll give you an example. He, this whole trade thing that he did, he creates these tariffs out of thin air and everybody's all upset. And all of a sudden now he's got something to negotiate that he just didn't have before right out of thin air. And then he starts peeling them away and he reorganizes all of NAFTA, all of these other agreements all over the world. And he did it by creating something out of thin air that never could have been done in the private sector. It could only happen in a government environment. And that's something, you know, that, uh, cause I comment on, on, uh, on TV and radio all the time about these kinds of issues. And, it actually surprised me when he started peeling these things away. I kind of had a feeling that there was some negotiating thing that was going to happen, but the way he did, I thought it was very masterful the way that he started peeling these back off and then started renegotiating the the, the trade agreements. Well, well, Joel, uh, let me agree with you first of all. And then let me ask the question at what cost? Literally think about the emotional turmoil that was created in that particular situation. And we still don't know to what degree good will come out of that particular negotiation. Again, was it haphazard? Was there really an end game in mind? That's something that I'm constantly questioning with the president. And and yes, he has done some things very well. And other things, uh, he leaves you scratching your head uh, per how he's engaged in situations from time to time. Again, I go back to uh, one of his staunchest supporters, literally having said, she's questioned to what, oh boy, I just let something slip right there. But she's questioned to what degree he is a good negotiator and basically literally said he's not the businessman that we all, and I'm paraphrasing, that we all think he is. Give credit where credit is due. Yes, if the outcome turns out to be positive, I'll say, hey, I've learned yet something else. But a lot of times what I observe with negotiators, now I'm taking it away from the president, with negotiators, if they get into a quagmire and they don't know exactly how to extricate themselves from it, it's usually a sign that they did not think deeply enough into what the possibilities might be that they would incur 
that they'd have to use to get away from that particular situation. So when you're grading someone on their negotiation skills, hey, we learn as we go sometimes. And if we're quick on our feet, it, it makes us appear to be more savvy than we otherwise could be. But over a period of time, if you watch someone's negotiation efforts, you start to develop a picture of them of, hmm, you know, maybe I rated the person an eight, maybe I should take it down to a six, or maybe I rated them a six, maybe I should take it up to an eight. Uh, either way. You know, it makes me think um, about Sun Tzu, you know, that every mm. battle is won before you ever step onto the battlefield. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, isn't that exactly what you're saying? Yes, 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 D definitely so. Because in a negotiation, it all goes to the whole plan that you've laid out, setting aside also what type of detours you might have to address in case what you thought was going to be a particular situation occurring as you negotiate doesn't happen. Okay, well, here's the detour I'm going to take because a roadblock has been put up in front of me. Well, I'm going to go around that uh, detour by stating X, Y, Z. I'll make these potential concessions. To what degree? Well, I make the other negotiator work hard for the concessions such that he now perceives me in a particular light versus me making me giving in, caving in, giving the appearance of caving in. So then he thinks he's in charge. I was interviewed once uh, on a TV network about the negotiation tactics that a particular uh, political figure was using at the time. And basically, the question that was posed to me was, is it good that, you, that he's using a leading from behind scenario? My response was, that can be good based on the overall strategy that he's employed. And we don't know what that strategy is because we're negotiating as we're watching his negotiation as it's unfolding. I go right back to what I said a moment ago with uh, the aspect, let's call it, of, well, where are we in the negotiation at this particular point in time? And to what degree do you have to take detours? To what degree do you even know? that a detour is coming and how do you prepare for it? Sometimes you can lead from behind, let the other person think they're winning the negotiation and that way you can have them have your way to win. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about body language for a second. You know, sometimes uh, people will walk into a room and say, I'm the boss. They got, they got three people with them. They got their little mini entourage or whatever they walk in. I'm the boss, I'm the president, I'm the whatever and everybody else is gonna be sitting there quietly. Um, you know, what do you think about people who use a strategy like that? I mean, what's going on for those kind of people? Well, here's an answer I give in a lot of situations when I'm talking about body language and, and negotiation tactics and strategies. It depends. Is the person <laughs> casting? You sound like an attorney. <laughs> well, hey, I, I have played one on TV, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, suppose the person wants to uh, project that image at that particular point in time. Now, now you're talking about body language. So the person wants to project that image and does so with his or her verbiage. I'm the boss uh, and this is how it's going to be. Notice even the tonality I just used as opposed to, well, I'm the boss and this is the way it's going to be. There are so many nuances that you can pick up per body language about how someone is truly thinking versus how they are committing those thoughts to the actions they're displaying. Okay, someone walks into a room and has an entourage. Are they really the boss or is there a power behind the throne that has more power as a result of controlling the boss? 
the body language can give some insight into that. Let's say that same scenarios, scenario is one whereby the boss walks into the room with his entourage. He's bent over looking down at the floor. Uh, he's taking small steps. Let's say if his stride is usually two feet, he's taking strides uh, one, feet, uh, one foot at a time or something of that nature. Those are cues that you can pick up on that, okay, he says, I'm the boss. Who's he talking to? He's looking down at the floor. He's not looking dead at the individuals to whom he's projecting that particular image. Those are little cues. Okay, let's take it a little step further. Now everyone's sitting down at a table. He keeps his hands in his lap. What is he doing then? He's protecting, well, he's protecting himself. Let me phrase it in that manner, as opposed to placing them on the table, spreading himself wider to give a larger appearance again cues and clues to the fact that he's not as in charge as he wants others to think it. And then last thing on that, why does he have to state it? Can he not display it? Because people will pick up nuances, not even realizing that they have picked up a signal. They call it intuition or whatever, not even realizing they've observed it. And that will influence their thought process and the way they react to someone. You know, I'd have to say in my career, 90% of the meetings that I've been in, uh, the boss does what, what we're talking about, where they come in, they blurt out that they're the boss. But the really, really powerful, really effective people, the ones that kind of lead from behind, as you're kind of talking about, they don't have to say a word. You just look around the room and you go, you know, you know exactly who's in charge. Exactly. Now, that doesn't mean that that person is, uh, is a, a dictator. They're, in fact, they probably, they spread it across, but you know uh, who everybody in the room respects, you can, you know, and when that exists, uh, you can tell in a second and, and very few leaders really, really command that level of respect. What are things that people need to do to command more respect? Well, first of all, like you just said a moment ago, Joel, display it. You don't necessarily have to constantly state I'm the boss. And if you are constantly stating I'm the boss, what's that saying about your belief well, it, it reflects some insecurity for sure. Well, well, yeah, exactly. And I was going to say just that. What does that say about the belief that others will follow you? Or to what degree do you really hold sway over others? Okay, we talked about positional power earlier. As a result of having the title of the boss, you have positional power. But if others don't respect that power, they may be undermining you left, right, and center putting the proverbial banana peelings ahead of you as you step, just waiting for you to slip and fall. And then once you fall, that becomes the leverage they can use against you. People in powerful positions need to understand that they need others in order to enhance their positions of power. You know, it's a funny thing. Um, blurting out that you're in charge can sort of work against you, kind of like what you were talking about with your mother. Uh, you know, it's not a bad thing for people to think you're poor <laughs> in a negotiating exactly. situation. If they think you're poor, they're not going to ask for very much. They're going to, they're going to fold pretty fast. If they think you're rich, they're going to keep, uh, keep digging for more. So in mm -hmm. a certain way, uh, you know, kind of playing, uh, kind of the subordinate might work to your advantage, doesn't it? Oh, definitely so. Uh, well, there's nothing else to be had here, so you can beat me up all you want. You can try to take more, but there's nothing else. Hey, you can't get blood from a stone. You know, I can go all kinds of. I can go with all kinds of cliches. Again, when you're negotiating, you have to understand what role you're going to play, how you're going to position yourself. I've purchased automobiles, 
and uh, they've been high-end luxury automobiles. One of the things I do before I go into such a dealership is take off my ring, take off the watch that I'm wearing, because those would be signs that, wait a minute, look at those ornaments this guy has. Uh, well, he's talking about he can't afford such and such, or he's at the top of his uh, limit as to what he'll pay. That may be true, but Oh, look at what he's wearing. There's more that you're that that he's given away in this particular case. But again, it's about positioning. Because if you can position yourself such that it's to your advantage to say you're poor, display that you're poor, again, people would be less likely, as you stated a moment ago, to keep pressing you for concessions in a negotiation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's turn that around for a quick moment, also, Joel. Okay. You know, one of the most extreme uh, examples of pretending that you're poor. There's a guy I know, he was having some IRS problems. And his uh -huh. attorney told him, you know, he had to, you know, take off all the trimmings, you know, everything that was fancy, including his toupee. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so he had to walk into the IRS, you know, no toupee, you know, the beat up clothes, you know, and, and, and really play the poor guy. <laughs> I well, mean, talk, talk about take it to the ex ex extreme, huh? Well, hey, to what degree do you wish to win an outcome that you're seeking in a negotiation, you know? Hey, Yeah, exactly. And, and Joel, back to what we were saying a moment ago and reversing that script about thinking you're poor, looking uh, the part, et cetera, et cetera. Smaller organizations need to understand even when they're negotiating with larger organizations, they have to flip that script. They have to appear to be bigger than they are, being able to sustain whatever it is and uh, accomplish whatever it is that that larger corporation is seeking from them. And by the fact that that larger corporation is seeking something from that says that larger corporation senses value in that smaller entity. And thus, to the degree that smaller entity can use that as leverage and buttress the appearance of the organization, they run a greater chance of achieving the outcome of the contract or whatever it is they're negotiating for. You know, as, as I've gotten older, what I've kind of realized is that people are a lot easier to move around than, than you would think. It really, you know, there's negotiation, which is kind of like a specific project. There's advertising, which is mass. I mean, we've got a lot of different ways that we do things, but people really go where you tell them to go. If you tell them march down this path, they're pretty much going to just do it. I mean, I, 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 it, it really surprises me. As I've gotten older, it really surprises me how easy it is that these companies just get people to do what they want them to do and march where they want them to march and whatever. It just—it's just a funny—it's a funny thing that that I notice. Well, and Joel, as we get older, we become more set in our ways. We are more susceptible to taking the path of least resistance, and thus it does become easier to hey. Here's all you have to do. Go down this path and uh, you'll reach success. Oh, that's all I have to do? Okay. And that's why it is a lot easier to uh, drive people in a particular direction, which is also the reason why we should be mindful from time to time of what is motivating us per how it or they are motivating us. Our mindset has to be one of being somewhat vigilant because scammers use the exact same technique that you mentioned a moment ago. And what is that? That's a negotiation. The scammer is trying to get you into a state of comfort 
And that's something about body language that we can speak of in a moment. But the, the uh, scammer is trying to get you into a state of comfort whereby you lower your guard in order to trust the scammer. And once the, tr uh, the scammer has crossed that threshold, you can be splayed to all kinds of additional techniques or tactics that that scammer using, uses. rather. Hey, listen, we have to uh, start to wind down, but could you give us a tip or two on, um, you know, whatever, whatever you think, you know, that'll make us either better body language readers or negotiators or, you know, just what, what do you think if there was one or two things people could work on as a result of our discussion, what would that be? Well, first of all, Joel, people need to remember and keep at the forefront of their mind the fact that they are always negotiating. You're just getting in and out of your car. You're just walking into your office. You're displaying some aspects about your demeanor at that particular point in time. Understand that you are giving away insights about yourself. So think, how am I negotiating at this particular point in time when it comes to reading body language? Understand the nuances that are conveyed via body language. It's conveyed in a handshake when people meet. Is someone's hand on top of yours? Is your hand on the bottom? Uh, to what degree are they using tactics of that nature to even persuade you at a subconscious level when you are just meeting that person or you're just engaged with them? It goes back to my tagline. Remember that you're always negotiating because that what you do today influences the opportunities that will present themselves to you tomorrow. You know, I remember reading in an airplane magazine one time, it's not what you deserve, it's what you negotiate. Yes. And, and you know, and that's, uh, that kind of summarizes it, doesn't it? You know, we, it, you have to get good at these skills. It, it's not just so that you can be the chief negotiator for your company, but uh, for your life. I mean, for your salary, for your time off, for your whatever. Uh, and listen, if you want to be a great negotiator, just get a kid. <laughs> that's an excellent kids, point kids will, will negotiate with you till they, they wear you down that's an excellent point because kids don't understand no no only means okay if mommy says no go to daddy yeah, and a lot of times just try again yeah, and you know, exactly. green eggs and ham I think the greatest book on negotiation of all time has always been green eggs and ham that's the greatest sales uh, guide of all time by Dr. Seuss and, and you know, definitely so listen kids they, they understand just persistence they, because they don't understand, uh, they don't take no for an answer. And as adults, we, we have to kind of think back to when we were kids. Sometimes that, that could work for us. Oh, you're absolutely right. And it goes back to something you said a moment ago about as we get older, we become easier to maneuver in one particular direction. Why? Because we've lost that resilience that we had when we were kids. We've become docile now simply because time has taught us, well, you got to stay within the lines because if you go outside the line, something bad might actually happen. Yeah. You listen, there's just, there's just friction and you don't need friction in your life. And you know, exactly, Joel, definitely. So, so sometimes it behooves one to act like a kid. And one yeah. last thing I'll say about just that, as far as practicing negotiations, and I'm uh, paraphrasing what you were saying a moment ago, Joel, I do it in just about any environment that I go into. I literally go to flea markets because I want to just practice negotiation skills and observe the body language of different people. Uh, I went to Penn State, and I was at a flea market in New Jersey one time. I saw this pillow 
that had the Penn State uh, uh, insignia on it. And I said to the lady that was selling, how much is it? She said it was $7. Okay, Joel, $7 is $7. But for the experience, I engaged in a negotiation. I said, I'll give you $3 for it. She said, how can I accept $3? I said, you're in New Jersey. How many people do you think will actually come by and look for a Penn State pillow that you have? Don't you want to sell it? She said, well, I guess if you put it like that, yes. But Joel, here's the thing. Win-win negotiations. And I probably will never see her again. I gave her the $7 anyway, even though she was willing to sell it to me at three that time. And she said, well, why are you giving it to me for $7? I said, the extra four is for the negotiation lesson that you allowed me. <laughs> Greg, you're, you're too much. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Your contact information uh, is in the show notes. Uh, I appreciate you being here, sharing some ideas, some thoughts. You're a fun guy, and, uh, and I just appreciate you uh, having you in my life. Thanks, man, very much. Well, Joel, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing for other individuals because you're truly adding value to their lives. Well, good. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to being in touch. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Strategies to give your business the inside track. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.